God, you are a mighty warrior. The weapons of this warfare aren't fleshly. They aren't guns and bullets and tanks. But they are mighty. To tear down strongholds. To take every thought captive and bring it to obedience to Jesus. And God, you are at war in this moment. You are warring for the souls of people. To bow to Jesus and his gospel. You're warring for the relationships of people. You're warring against the sin that so easily traps us. You're warring, Father, against the sin that has captured the hearts of your people. You're warring against the strongholds that have set up in our hearts and our lives to tear them down and set us free. You're warring over marriages today. You're warring for reconciliation. You're warring for love. You're warring, Father, to restore brother to sister and father to child and husband to wife. You're warring, Father. And I pray that you would not stop. Just like you've promised, God, that you who have begun a good work will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. You will not stop. And so, God, I pray you would rescue people today. I pray you would restore people to wholeness today. I pray that, Father, you would call people uh, to follow you with a fresh passion today. I pray, Father, you would rescue them from the chains of sin today. I pray you would reconcile every broken relationship today. For the glory of your name, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And one of the things I think is a true statement, I'm pretty sure it is, so I'm going to say it. We're not really good at reconciliation, are we? We're good at calling truces. We're, we're good at negotiating settlements that we can live with with each other. We're really good at avoiding each other if it's too hard or too complex or too different. But we're not really good at reconciling, are we? That heart level, coming back together, forgiveness kind of reconciling. We're terrible at that. Right? And so we have, we, we spend, a, you know, years, maybe decades in our marriages having negotiated a settlement we can live with. And yet, harboring and building up sins and offenses and distancing ourselves from each other. And maybe it looks like flashpoint blowups or maybe it just looks like the slow drift. We're not good at reconciling. Or maybe there's people that we sit on this side of the church while they sit on that side of the church. And we've done it for years because we're not very good at reconciling. Or maybe you've got family members you haven't talked to for years because we're not very good at reconciling. Heart level, forgiveness, reconciling. We're just not good at it. Because it takes Jesus. It takes death to self. It takes esteeming other people better than ourselves. It takes humility. It takes confessing our wrongs, even if the other person doesn't confess theirs. It takes as much as it resides within me to live at peace with all men. And we're not very good at reconciling. And I'm not standing up here in front of you because I'm great at it. I'm standing up here in front of you because the word of God challenges us to love Jesus 
and in loving Jesus, drive ourselves back to each other. You know, we're reading in 1 John, might be two weeks ago or last week, and it says, how can you love your brother that you do see? Or, I mean, sorry, how, how can you love God who you don't see when you hate your brother that you do see? Like, how can you say you and God are great when you and other people aren't? And I think that's one of the themes that we're going to see throughout this passage is we're going to see that you cannot be in broken relationships with other people as much as it depends on you and in a good relationship with God at the same time. The two just don't go together. We like to think they do, but they just don't. So let's walk through the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 15 through 2, 4, kind of a bigger chunk. Let's get caught up to where we are in the book. Christ is the supreme and worthy treasure, even if it means slander against you. And even if it means suffering is going to enter your life, Christ is a worthy treasure in the face of all that. So we began the book with two weeks on. We are praising God because he is the father. We're praising God who's the father who has sent his son, Jesus. We're praising God because he's the father who gives mercy into our life, who gives help into our life, who gives grace into our life. We're praising God that in every affliction, he comforts us. And when he comforts us, he wants to use us to comfort other people. We're praising God that he is willing to let affliction enter the life of his children if it means it pries our self-centeredness from us and instead allows us to cling more tightly to him. We're praising God for all that. And then uh, Paul, a couple weeks ago when we were to, together last, uh, Paul begins a defense of his integrity. He wants the Corinthian church to be able to boast in him, not because of him, but to boast in him and to cling to the truth of the gospel that he has brought them instead of them being ashamed of him as people bring charges and attacks against his integrity. And so he just said, here, look, my life holds up to the light when it's examined. And it really is what I says it is, said it is. My life can be examined and it will hold up to the scrutiny. So then we get into this week today. Paul is continuing the defense of his integrity. But he's applying it to a very specific charge. You see, there were false prophets in the church. And there were false apostles in the church. And they had used this opportunity where Paul said he was going to come to the to, to Corinth. But then he didn't come. And so they seized on this to say, look, Paul doesn't really care about you that much. Look, Paul says one thing and does another. And so they just zoomed in on this this you know situation of Paul and magnified it. So that questions about his integrity and questions about his care would arise. And so this passage, 115 through 24, is Paul explaining that situation. And he, when he's explaining that situation, he also weaves in this theme of reconciliation. And that's what I'm going to zero in on. So the background of the passage, here's my integrity. Here's why I said I was coming and didn't come. But against the background of that, my goal is to build a bridge of reconciliation between me and you, the Corinthian church. And to make that bridge stronger so that it holds up. So here we go. Chapter 1 verse 15 says. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first. So that you might have a second experience of grace. What I would say that means. Because we're not going to get back to that. Is you would have a second opportunity to help me financially. Which is what he says in the next verse. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. And come back uh, to you. And have you send me on my way? I believe that's what the second experience of grace is. And so have you send me on my way? Help me get on my trip to Judea. Was I vacillating when I said, or when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? 
As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God as witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work for your joy and for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who have made, who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Let's look at it. Jesus is central to the process of reconciliation. Jesus is central to the process of reconciliation. First step, we share a common salvation and promises. God is faithful to them all. We share a common salvation and promises, and God is faithful to them all. A guy named Paul Tripp uh, wrote a marriage book, and one of the statements he makes that has always stood out to me is that marriages and all relationships are fixed vertically before they are fixed horizontally. Meaning, if you have a problem in a relationship with another person, if you have a problem in in your marriage relationship, if you have a problem with your roommates, if you have a problem with somebody in the church... That problem, first and foremost, gets fixed by a a, a relationship with God. And then secondarily gets fixed between each other. You see, you can't have a broken relationship with other people and a good relationship with God at the same time. And let me say it another way. If you have a broken relationship with other people, it is an indicator in your life that something is broken in your relationship with God. There is some distance, there is some straying, there is some missing peace. There is something about your relationship with God that is not the way it should be. Again, as much as it relies on you, right? There are two people, but as much as it relies on you. So if your relationships are broken, look backwards first. Soak yourself in the gospel first. Look at Jesus first. Look at your relationship to him first. Look at the intimacy and vibrancy and connection that you have with him first. But then what you'll realize is it gives you a whole new set of lenses to look at the other person through. You'll see other people differently if you see Jesus first. You'll see other people differently if there's an intimacy between you and God that had been distanced, and you'll find that your relationships, at least as much as they depend on you, have this wonderful chance to reconcile that they don't without Jesus. Marriages are fixed. Roommates are fixed. Church splits are fixed vertically in our relationship with God. Before they're fixed horizontally in our relationships with other people. We cannot be intimate with God and broken with people at the same time. We can't do it. It's just not possible. 
All right, and so Paul is going to drive us deep into God and his saving work as his first step towards reconciliation. And so you think, here, Paul, you've got all these question marks on your integrity. We don't think you care about us that much. Zooming in on this one little issue of him saying he's going to come and doesn't come. You don't keep your word, Paul. And you'd think Paul would be like, I do keep my word. But how does Paul start his defense? Look at God. God's faithful. Look at God and the common salvation he's given us. He gives them a theological answer. And that's where your relationships being fixed is going to start. It's going to start with the faithfulness of God. It's going to start with the common salvation brought to us by Jesus. It's going to start by your relationship with Jesus. It's going to start for the rich promises that give us eternal hope in Jesus. And only then is it going to work out practically. So let's look at the text. Again, we won't go through 15 and 16, but basically what had happened was Paul says, look, I wanted to come to you again. I was going to come to you. Then on my way back, I was going to come to you a second time and I was going to be able to give you, take this second experience of grace, the second offering to help me on my way to Judea. That's the plan. It just didn't work out that way. And so kind of let's look at the timeline. So Paul had sent Timothy over to the Corinthian church. He had come back and said, there's some trouble in Corinth. And so Paul makes a visit and it's called the painful visit. He goes there and he kind of just walks in to see what's going on and get the church in a good place. And instead they attack him, they slander him, they run him out of town in shame. And so Paul's faced with a choice. I can call down the thunder or I can walk out of this, this city ashamed by these people. What am I going to do? And Paul walks out of that painful visit, shamed by the people who exist as a church because of him. It's a strategic retreat. He leaves. And then he writes back a letter called the severe letter to them, confronting the issues in the church, calling for repentance, calling for reconciliation. But instead of going back at that point and kind of pressing the issue at, at the moment, he kind of backs off, uses this letter, and then sends another uh, uh, follower of Jesus, Titus, to kind of get a report. And so that's the timeline of what is happening. And so Paul says, <coughs> I wanted to come to you first, and I might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit on my way to Macedonia and have you send me. And now he comes to the defense. Was I vacillating when I said that? What does the word mean? Was I being fickle? Was I kind of like, yeah, if it works out, I'll go. If it doesn't, I won't go. Was I treating this word of mine and our relationship with each other lightly? That seems to be one of the charges. And so these false prophets said, look, he does not care about you. Look how lightly he treats you. Something better came along and so he didn't even come and visit. You can't trust this Paul guy. He doesn't care. And that seems to be what had happened. Was I vacillating? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? And the implication mean, being, was I making my plans selfishly? It wasn't convenient for me to come. It was too hard for me to travel. It just didn't work with my schedule. That's why I didn't come. That's what they're charging him with. And Paul's like, was that vacillating? Was I being self-centered and fleshly when I decided not to come? Is that what happened? And so that's how he's kind of raising these, or, or raising his objections or raising his answering back to them. Do I make my plans according to the flesh? What's the implication of that? I don't treat you lightly. That's the answer. And I don't make my plans governed by my flesh and what I want. I make my plans governed by God's spirit. So God can send me somewhere or he can stop me from going somewhere. 
God can take my plans, jumble them up, throw them in the trash can and do what he wants. That's the right he has over my life. By the way, that's the right he has over your life too. I've got these great plans, God. No, go do what I want. God, here's where I'm going to school. God, I'm going to work at this company. It's going to be great. And they're going to give me a gold watch after 30 years. God has total rights over your plan. And that's what he's saying. Here's my answer to you. God owns my life. He owns my travel itinerary. He owns my plans. And if he lets me go, I go. And if he doesn't let me go, I don't go. But isn't this the way slander works? Isn't this exactly the way slander works? You make a statement. Somebody takes it out of context and makes a big deal out of it. That's slander. Or they intentionally misinterpret the statement to try to make it say something else, make say something else, make insinuations about that statement so that they can run down your character. Isn't that how slander works? Out of context, let's intentionally misinterpret. Let's assume the worst possible meaning to the mistakes that you make. Let's assume the worst possible meanings to the words you say. That's slander. And it belongs in the political realm. Doesn't really. But they do it up there, right? It doesn't belong to us. Even if we disagree with the candidates, even if we disagree with the politics, slander is not okay for us. Or turn on the news channels. Let's take things out of context. Let's make insinuations. Let's drive home a case against somebody we don't like. That's for them. That is not for you and that's not for me. But you're like, I'm not on the news media, so that's fine. And I'm not in politics, so that's fine. Social media. We repost stories and we repost quotes and we make insinuations and we take things out of context and we major on minor details about a person that we don't even know. Slander is not for us. Or we do it about our church leaders. We do it about church leaders at other churches. We do it about uh, the people in our Sunday school class. And we zoom in on one negative thing. We take the worst possible interpretation. We intentionally misinterpret their words. We say, um, we major on some minor thing. And it's called slander. And it's a sin. And it's a sin when you do it in politics. And it's a sin when you do it in media. And it's a sin when you do it on social media. None of that removes the veil of like what's required of the Christian heart. It has no place in our lives. And that's what's happened to Paul. They've slandered him. They've taken nothing and they've said it enough times that it became something. And so here's Paul's answer. His first answer is theological. God is faithful. Why does he say that? I don't have to swear by Paul. I'll just tell you God's faithful. And if you believe for eternal life, the word that we brought to you from God, and if you believe for your salvation and your eternity, this word that we brought to you from God, then why are you so wrapped up in this little detail of my travel plans getting changed? You can trust me for eternity because I brought this message about Jesus to you, but you can't trust me because, you know, plans didn't work out. And so that's his first answer. It's this theological thing. I'm not going to make an oath on my own word. That's not any good, right? doesn't hold up that I say I'm fine and I meant the best out of it. God's faithful. You've trusted him. You've trusted the word about him from us. You can trust us. And the other theological answer that he gives there, as he keeps going in there, is, uh, yeah, 
yep, dip, dip, dip. I can't find the verse. My eyes are failing me. I'm so sorry. 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and he's anointed us and he's put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what's the second theological answer? The only way we stand is together. We're established by God together. We stand firm in God together because of the work of salvation by his Holy Spirit that he's given us. You see, he's saved us by his Holy Spirit. He's sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He has anointed us with his Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means God at salvation put his Holy Spirit to live in you, anointed you, meaning he equipped you for service, and he equipped you for mission. And so when God saved you and when God saved me, he put us together in a family. He put a Holy Spirit in us and the Holy Spirit is there to equip us for service and to commission us for missions that he's given us. That's you and that's me. We have this common bond of salvation. We have this common bond of the Holy Spirit sending us to serve. A common bond of the Holy Spirit sending us into the mission together. And so we can trust each other. We should give each other the grace interpretation of our words and the grace interpretation of our actions, not the slander interpretation of our words and the slander interpretation of our actions. Y'all out there? Does that make sense? Y'all doing that for each other? No, but you need to, right? So do I. Just So do I. So do I. And so those are the theological answers. God is faithful. And then he goes into, we proclaimed you this word about the Son of God. We proclaimed to you Jesus. Sylvanius did it. I did it. Uh, Timothy did it. We proclaimed to you this gospel. You believe this gospel. You believed it from us. Believe us with our travel plans. We were so faithful to the word and you believed the word through us. Believe us for this. But then he talks about and all the promises are yes in Jesus. What does he mean? He means that all the Old Testament guarantees, all the Old Testament promises, all the Old Testament things that God said he would accomplish. They find Jesus is the culmination. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And then for all of humanity, our most meaningful hopes are not yes or no. In Jesus, all the meaningful hopes of humanity are yes So the meaningful hopes of humanity aren't that you're going to get healthy and live a long, healthy life. The meaningful hopes of humanity are not that you are going to grow wealthy and live comfortable in a big house until you retire a nice, easy retirement. That is not the hopes of humanity, not the meaningful ones. The meaningful hopes of humanity are that God will adopt you as a son and be a father to you. The meaningful hopes of humanity is that the sin that separates you from God will be removed by the cross and the blood of Jesus, forgiven and reconciled back. The meaningful hopes of humanity is that we will spend eternity where every tear is wiped out of our eyes and there is no more pain and there is no more suffering. There is no more need of light because God and the Lamb will be its light and he'll be in the throne in the middle of the city. That's the meaningful hopes of humanity because the meaningful problems of humanity have nothing to do with our financial situation. The meaningful problems of humanity have nothing to, or, or less to do with our health. They're eternal and they're spiritual and they're big. And all of them find a yes from God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All the big things, all the meaningful things are yes in Jesus. And we stand together in Jesus. We're established in Jesus together. 
See, God does not establish you individually. God doesn't establish you to parachute into church, parachute out of church, and go live an individual life. God establishes you with the people you're sitting next to in church right now. But you're like, look at these people. Surely there's something better to establish me with. God, can I, you know, can I get a do-over? No. This is the bride of Jesus without spot or blemish or any such thing who has been washed with the water of the word. And you've been placed by the divine hand of God right next to the people you are. Right in the same room with the people you are. You have been established with this group of people right now. And you've been, and that's happened because of the prior work of the Holy Spirit. You've been anointed. You are commissioned. I don't want to be. Well, the saving Holy Spirit anointed you and equipped you for service and mission. It's not a matter of whether you want to or not. That's the call. That's wrapped up in your salvation. And you were sealed. That is, God put a stamp on you, said that I own you. You're my possession. You're my cherished possession. And then he gave the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, which means the first installment of a payment that guarantees the future payments will be made. That's salvation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to equip you, to commission you, to send you, to serve together, to be on mission together. And then he, he puts his belonging stamp on you. You belong to God. That's a good thing. And then he writes a check of payment in the blood of Jesus that says, I guarantee you I'm going to complete the, the process. I guarantee you I'm going to finish the work. And the Holy Spirit is the first payment of that future eternal purchase that he's made in us. That's the first reason that Paul gives for reconciliation. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with what God has done in you and how God has formed us together and how God has placed us together. And the way our our relationships reconcile is that God is faithful and he's secured these promises in Jesus and he's established us together. Your relationships will always be fixed vertically before they're fixed horizontally. And if your relationships are broken horizontally, the first place you need to look is vertically. And let me encourage you this. You run as far away from slander as you possibly can. Just because you type it behind a screen and just because people agree with you does not make it okay for us as believers to say. There should be some way for us to engage the conversations of our culture that is different than our culture. But unfortunately, too often, our engagement sounds too much like theirs. It's not seasoned with salt. It's filled with the same insinuations and innuendos. That everybody else is. Right, that's step one. We have this common salvation. That's how we reconcile. The joy of reconciliation requires Jesus because we've been brought together with this common salvation in Jesus. And then the second step he takes. Now he's going to start answering more specifically why he didn't come. And let's look at the second step. Work for the joy of reconciliation and be slower with dominating or cutting off. Work for the joy of reconciliation and be slower with dominating or cutting off. All right, so as I do premarital counseling, maybe you've noticed this too. There's kind of two types of conflict people in the world. Now, we all hate conflict and none of us do it very well. Amen? All right, but there's two kind of basic approaches. One approach is, you might notice this in me, it's like the battering ram approach. Let's talk about it now. Let's deal with it now. Let's push through it now. Let's solve it now. And then there's another type of relationship approach. Give me time, give me space. 
I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it now. Just give me time to process. All right, have you noticed this? So you know that some fireworks are bound to happen when, hey, just give me time, give me space. I need to process this. Meets now, now. Let's talk, let's talk, let's work this out. We can't, go, we can't do this. We got to do it now. Y'all done that lately? Come on now. It's not just me, right? So these are the two types of relationships, uh, kind of conflict handling things that I see. And so here's kind of how I try to counsel them as they prepare to enter a life that will involve conflict. By the way, if you're engaged, it will involve conflict. You're going to be a sinner who marries a sinner and y'all aren't always going to get along and you're going to make some bad choices that aren't even sin. They're just dumb and, you know, you're going to have conflict. And so here's what I counsel people. If you're a retreat kind of person, make sure you tell them, I promise I will talk to you about this. I promise I'll deal with this. I need to go spend some time figuring it out, processing it, and I will come back to you. All right. So that gives you, that gives the answer to the person that wants to solve it. Now I'm going to solve it. But just let me get time to kind of work this out so that I can come solve it in a healthy way. And then if you're the battering ram kind of person, I try to counsel like, hey, give them time, give them space. But you've just got to make sure that it does come back and it does get resolved. And so just to both of them, like, give things time to cool off. Because you've been in the same fights I've been in where you just start battering and battering. And then all of a sudden what was simmering boils over and explodes in your relationship. And you're like, what happened? Right? Or with my kids. Like they're in an ill mood and they're being disrespectful. I'm going to solve this now. Does it give them any chance to be successful in that interaction? No. All I'm going to do is make them matter. More entrenched in their sin. And me matter. And more entrenched in my sin. Versus allowing time for things to cool off. A strategic retreat so to speak. But with the promise. We're going to come back. We're going to deal with it. And I think that's what we're going to see Paul working out in this time. He's he's used a strategic retreat, not to let it go, but so that it has the best chance of reconciliation possible. He's going to deal with the issue, but he's going to deal with it in a way that gives it a chance to succeed instead of a way that guarantees an explosion. It guarantees, like I started out with, that we don't just keep negotiating truths that drive us further apart and accumulate in our heart, but allow us to actually come back together because we've worked on issues together, giving them the best chance of success so that relationships actually mend and become stronger and healthier through conflict versus worse through conflict. Let's look at the text. Here's how he does it. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming. And so in verse 12, you know, before God, I call my testimony as a witness. In this verse, I call God as a witness. And so basically he's viewing it as you Corinthians have put me on trial. You have put my integrity on trial. You have questioned me. My first witness that I'm calling is my conscience before God. Because that's what I've got. My second witness is God himself. And so if I am right, then God will vindicate me. I'm calling him as a witness to my case. And if I am wrong, God will condemn me. I'm calling him to judge me if I'm wrong. And then what does he say? It was to spare you that I kept from coming. And so Paul could have come back. Paul had all authority over this church. He could have walked into the church, brought the thunder, broken it irreparably, and been completely right. They had done what was wrong, they were guilty, they were in sin, and he could have addressed it and finished it. So he could have, he knew that if he visited, he would have to. 
So if he comes to Corinth to deal with it, he's going to have to call out the people that are wrong. He's going to have to call out the false teachers, the false false prophets, and the false apostles. He's going to have to deal with the issues in the church. But what he knows is going to happen if he does that, it's going to break and never mend again. And it wasn't worth it to him. And so Paul said, to spare you the severe discipline of my coming, I didn't come. Because if I came, it was going to have to be the thunder visit. And so it was a strategic retreat. It was a strategic giving of time. And then in the middle of that time, which he's going to say uh, in the verses for the next verse, he writes a letter. It's called the severe letter. But instead of coming and pushing that thing and battering ram the issue and dealing with the issue to blow up the church, he withdraws. And so it was to spare you, but then that brings up kind of two words, doesn't it? It brings up the word authority. We don't like that one. I don't like it. Do you like it? Right? And so Paul steps back after that statement, like, hey, I was, I did this to spare you. And he steps back to explain the authority. Because there's a balance for the apostles, and even more so for pastors. There's a balance to authority. Right? I'm not your Lord. I'm not this church's Lord. Jesus is. And so I don't have lording authority over the church or lording authority over the members of the church. I have this derived, this given authority by Jesus that's more limited, that is under Jesus. And so that's what he's saying. I don't lord over your faith. I'm not your God. I am not your Lord. I'm not the one you bow to. I have authority to deal with the issues, but I don't take lordship privileges over the church. And he's holding these two things in tension. The second word, which will be in the last point, he brings up his love. And so this painful visit and these letters all derive out of a heart of love. And so he did it to spare you. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Paul exercises his authority in the church to maximize the church's joy in God. Why do I exist? I want you to grow in your faith. And growing in your faith will mean growing in your joy in God. I want you to so richly enjoy Jesus, so richly treasure Jesus, that whatever it takes to get you to do that, that's what I want to do. And that's what your leaders want you to do. And if that means that you're trapped in sin and we got to come, it's not to destroy you. It's because we want your joy in the faith. And your joy in the faith doesn't come from sin. It doesn't come from rebellion. It doesn't come from hardening your heart. It comes from repentance. It comes from faith. When you progress in faith, you progress in joy. And so that's what Paul is saying. I'm working for your joy. And I'm going to do this reconciliation with you in a way that maximizes your chance at joy. I'm not going to do this reconciliation in a way that maximizes my image in front of you that puts you down. In Philippians 1, Paul does the same, kind of a similar thing. In Philippians 1, he talks about, you know, I could die now and I could be with Jesus and that would be so much better than anything else. But if I stay here, that's more helpful for you. I don't even know what to do. And then he finishes with this statement. I believe I'll remain on with you for your progress and your joy in the faith. Why is it worth not going to Jesus right now to Paul? Because it's going to help your faith grow. And when your faith grows, your joy will grow with it. Your progress and your joy in the faith. And that's what he says here. I don't lord over you. I work for your joy in faith. And then he goes on, and I'll just encapsulate that first part of chapter 2 for you. Joy and pain. Joy and pain. Here's what I think is happening, and just to kind of make it simple. 
Paul is, Paul's joy is found in the church and being in relationships to the church. So what is it that, what is the pain Paul is talking about here? It is the pain of broken relationships within the church. It's the pain of broken fellowship. And it should break your heart to be in broken relationships with other people. It should grieve your soul deeply to be out of fellowship with any other person. And that's what he's saying. I've got this pain. I don't want to make another painful visit. If I cause you pain, broken relationship, who is there to make me glad? You're the only one that can restore my gladness. Because you're the only one that can bring reconciliation on your part back to me. And so the only way to end pain, the only way to bring rejoicing is reconciliation. And so if I broke the thing right now, there'd be no way for joy, the gladness of relationship to return. And that's the same thing that's true in your relation, your relationships. Broken relationships always break joy. It should deeply grieve you. And if it doesn't deeply grieve you that your relationships are broken, that's a bigger problem. If it doesn't bother you anymore that you don't have relationships with other people, then something's broken inside. And it has to be fixed vertically before it's fixed horizontally. If it doesn't grieve your soul, that you're out of fellowship, as much as it depends on you. If it doesn't grieve your soul terribly, something's wrong. And that's what Paul is saying here. Is this reconciliation, this gladness. I didn't come because it was going to break the chance of the restored joy of reconciliation. And that's what's true in your life as well. And so let me just encourage you, if you're the battering ram, be willing to withdraw the battering ram to create the best opportunity possible to reconcile, to deal with relationships, to have Jesus flourish your relationships. But if you're the retreat person, here's the struggle you face, isn't it? Just give me time, just give me space, let me process it. Take it off boil, never deal with it again. We don't have to get back to that. What's the big deal? Why start a fight now, right? Don't walk away and never come back. Don't push to the point where you blow something up that becomes much harder to fix once you've blown it up. Last step. Sometimes gracious confrontation is the most loving thing we can do. Sometimes gracious confrontation is the most loving thing we can do. Now, I don't want to be too gross or too graphic. But I got bit by something on my leg a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, eh, no big deal. It'll go away. And then I was kind of rubbing like, ah, oh, that kind of hurts. Look at it and like, ah, no big deal. It'll go away. And then I'm like, God, that really hurts. And I look at it and this little red dot had become this deep red crimson, like massive dot. I'm like, that's probably not good. And so I actually treated it, right? It was infected. I treated it. It went away. Isn't that what you do in your relationships? It'll be fine. Little skirmish, little problem. Ah, don't worry about it. Ah, it's not worth a fight. Let's just ignore the problem. And then that little dot, that little nothing expands, expands expands, it festers, it gets infected. Let me promise you this. There is not one problem in your life that goes away by ignoring it. There's not one problem in your relationships that goes away by ignoring it. There's not one thing that gets solved by sweeping it under the rug and pretending like it didn't happen. Sometimes 
the most loving thing you can possibly do is deal with issues. It's to address them. Address them humbly. Address them graciously. Address them in love. Address them with a the goal of seeing the plank in your own eye before the dust in the other person's eye. Address them, but address them head on. And there's sometimes there's nothing more loving than that. I know that's weird for our culture because it's like, you know, in our culture to address something or to state a truth or to confront is like, that's this huge, bad, negative thing. But sometimes it's the best. Sometimes that's what love looks like. And that's exactly what Paul says in these last few verses. Here he goes. Verse 3. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who would cause me rejoice. That means I might not suffer the pain of broken relationships from those who should have caused me joy by being in good relationships. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. So what is he saying? Instead of this visit that would have broken everything, I wrote a letter. And so what he's saying is if I... If I address the issue now, I'm going to break it and it won't be fixable. But if I ignore the issue and don't deal with it at all, it's going to just drift and get worse. And so he writes a letter into the situation. And he writes this severe letter, it's called, not because he was ugly in it, but because it was a direct call for repentance. It was a direct call for reconciliation. And he wrote that letter into the church because he was certain that God would use that letter to restore his joy and their joy together. That's what he's saying. Addressing it head on was going to bring reconciliation and reconciliation brings joy with it. And then look at what he says. For I wrote to you out of much affliction, anguish of heart with many tears. Does that sound like a guy that's just trying to exert his authority? Does that sound like a guy that wants to just come step on people and conform them to his way? No, it looks like the kind of guy that is so grieved that his relationships are broken that he will do anything to mend them. It looks like a guy who stains the brokenness of his relationships with his tears of grief over that break. When was the last time you wept over a broken relationship? When was the last time you actually felt the deep grief that you're broken with another person? The deep grief that you and your children are separated through a fight or an argument. The deep grief that you and your spouse have separated or distant or broken with each other. The deep grief that you and another person don't talk anymore in your family or in the church. When did you feel grief over that again? You see, it's that tears, that cleansing, that grief that indicates God's at work in your heart to take grief and turn it back into joy. And it's the absence of that grief that should terrify us. Because when you get to a point you don't care about relationships anymore, something has gotten off kilter with God in such a big way that you don't feel pain at what you should be pained by. All right, anguish, tears, not to cause you pain, but so that you know the love I have for you. I wept over this letter, not because I wanted to crush you with it, but because I wanted you to know how much I love you. And it is that love for you, that reconciling love for you that I want you to feel with every tear-soaked page. I don't want you to feel battered through and pushed down and cut off. Man, wouldn't that have been easier? The Corinthian church, they're a mess. Wouldn't it be easier to just say, see you later. I've only got so much life and ministry to give and you're not getting any more of it. You have slandered me for the last time. I'll invest in somebody that wants it. But he still grieved over a church that he could have just as easily cut off. 
And he grieved over them so bitterly because he wanted them to know, I still love you abundantly. Man, I'd love to have that, wouldn't you? I'd love to have more of that in my relationships. That I'm so grieved by our our broken relationships that I don't want to be right anymore. I want you to know my love for you now. I'm so grieved over the brokenness of my relationship that I don't want to get my point across anymore. I just want you to know I love you abundantly in the middle of this. I want to be restored to you. I don't want this separation anymore. That's what Paul is aiming for in the Corinthian church. That's what Paul is, the letters that are hard and direct, he wants them to know love. The letters that are filled with compassion, he wants them to know they're loved. Because he wants reconciling joy to be part of their experience again. Let's look at a few practical things as we close. Run from even a hint of slander. I know you look at the political landscape and it's easy fodder, isn't it? There's a lot of boneheaded things going on. Run from slander. And I promise you, if you look hard enough at me or at the church, plenty of things, plenty of things. Run from slander. Run from the worst possible interpretation of each other. Run from taking things out of context to pull people down. Run from zooming in on minor things and making them major things. Run from saying something so much that people start to believe it instead of it being actually true. It has no place in your life. It has no place in your relationship with God. It has no place in your relationships with each other. And you know where you probably do this the most? Right inside here. Tell me that just picture the person. Spouse, friend, roommate, person in church, me. You've got a really good reason, don't you? Like you've got a whole list of offenses in your mind about them. Like you can point out six months, six years worth of offenses, right? No problem at all. And then pull that list up and I want you to put a stamp over it. Slander. That is zooming in. Pulling out and misinterpreting. And if there's something in that list that needs to be dealt with, deal with it. But otherwise, stamp slander and get rid of it. Run from slander. Second step, deal with issues in a way that gives the best chance of success. This is one of the things Amy figured out because she's smarter than me. When she's had a bad day or when things are going wrong in, uh, in our relationship or with the kids, 5.15 when I walk in from work, is not the best chance for success for a good, healthy conversation about what's going wrong. And she figured that out. So we figure out a time that is the best time where the mental and emotional energies are actually there to deal with an issue as opposed to just like, I'm going to explode if you tell me one more thing wrong. I just dealt with wrong things all day, right? Set yourselves up for success by the way you handle conflict, by the way you address issues. Give it the best chance to succeed. Which means there's times you've got to bring up an issue and deal with it. But it also means there's times you've got to back off into strategic retreat so you don't break the thing worse. Give your issues the best chance of success possible. The best time, the best place, the best approach. Bathed under Jesus because there's logs in your eye, I promise you. Give it the best chance for success. Last one, don't avoid issues. Grieve them and address them. Both of those. I don't leave grieving out of your addressing of issues. Do not leave it out. Because what you're going to do is you're going to be prideful. 
And you're going to be harsh and you're going to be self-righteous if you leave out the grief. I am more grieved over my broken relationship than I am over whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong or whether it's 60-40 or 70-30 or whatever. I'm more grieved over where we are. And so make sure you don't avoid issues, but you grieve and address them. Let me give you two verses of scripture I use in counseling and walking through this. The first one is love covers a multitude of sins. Do you ever notice when you're first married, the little things that annoy you or the little sins that you get so worked up about now, they weren't that big a deal. Oh, that's so cute. Right? Ten years in, all of a sudden, it's World War Three over every little cute thing that used to be at the beginning of the marriage. Why? Because love drifted and it doesn't cover a multitude of sins anymore. So there are issues because your part, your spouse, your friends, your roommates are fallen, sinful people. There are issues that you just should love them enough to let go. And then if your brother sins against you, as the other verse, tell him his fault. There are some issues that you have to address. You can't let them go. You can't let love cover them. And the way I, the way I work through that as to what is it? Does it linger in my heart? Or is it something because of love, it just kind of goes away and it doesn't fester in my own heart? Does it leave lasting hurt versus kind of that little sting that all sin kind of does in the moment? Is it getting bigger or habitual? Meaning it's starting to take control of their life. So we have to deal with it. And then the last one, does it hinder their progress with God? Right? And so there's things that you have to just let go because you love them. And there's things you have to address because you love them. So address them with grief and address them head on. Jesus is the central key to reconciliation between you and God because you're separated from him eternally. And if you do not turn from your sin and place your faith in this Jesus to adopt you to the Father, to save you, there's no reconciliation. But Jesus is the key to reconciliation between you and other people. Because deep heart level forgiveness and reunion only come as Jesus works deeply within us. Jesus is central to reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would mend hearts, mend relationships.